Okay, would you uh, thank Cloverton just one more time this morning? They've been on tour all across the United States, so it's an honor for us to have them with us this week. They'll be with us uh, this morning and then tomorrow evening at 6.30 for chapel and then Friday morning again. Um, they've also got some merchandise back here, so if you guys want a t-shirt or CD, make sure you take advantage of that as well. Uh, this is a special week for us. This is something that's central to the life of our, of our university we have every year. It's called the Cox, Cox Holiness Series, named after our former president, Dr. Leo Cox. And some of you come from Wesleyan backgrounds and some of you don't. But for us as Wesleyans and for our institution, what we believe is Wesley, or holiness is central to who we are, the belief that God calls us to be different. And it's not only just a set of beliefs, but it's also a way of life, the way that we live, that affects community. It affects the way that we interact with each other. Um, so we've got a speaker here this week. Dr. Steve Deneff comes from College Wesleyan Church in Marion, Indiana. Um, he's a pastor of, of several hundred college students there. And... Uh, a pastor there in the city of, of Marion. He's also written several books, including one this last summer called Soul Shift that came out this last summer that you can pick up on Amazon. And I can't think, students, of a better person to speak on this, this vital message of holiness um, for you this week. So would you all welcome Dr. Steve Deneff as he comes up this morning to share. Boy, it's really good to be back with you guys. I think, you know what, the last time I was here, I remember it well, it was the night President Obama was elected. Uh, I sat there in this like old hotel, kind of renovated, and I watched the returns and, and, uh, and watched the, the, the first time in American history that we elected an African-American president. So it was kind of a historic moment. I was trying to think back about that. And so it's been only three years. Boy, a lot's happened, hasn't it? A lot has happened in the last three years' time, and that's the most political thing I'm going to say all three days. What I really want to talk to you about is what Cloverton just sang about. It's you are making me new. You know, I just heard Ben talk about, about how holiness is central to the Wesleyan Church. That's not the only thing. I think holiness is central to people. I think everybody craves it. I think I read somewhere 97% of the American public right now thinks that there's something about themselves that they wish they could change, 97%. The other 3% probably need to change everything. <laughs> but the, most of us, you know, there's something about our lives that we wish was a little bit different. And so we enter into this stage early in life and say, I got to get better at that. I got to be different about these kind of things. And what happens is as we get older, we start giving up that dream. And then we can become cynical, and we just sort of settle in, and we say, you know what, this must just be the way it is always going to be. If you get nothing else from the next three days, get this, you can genuinely be a different person. I think in your mind, you already have a picture of what your personality would look like if it was unleashed and it came full. You'd be a completely different person in so many cases. And what I want to convince you, I hope, is that you don't have to give up on that dream. That can actually happen. In fact, that's normal. Everything else is abnormal. So we want to kind of raise the standard here the next few days that we spend together. Let's think about then how people change. How does change happen to people? Uh, three or four years ago, I read the story of A.J. Jacobs. He's a guy who used to be an editor-in-chief uh, for Esquire magazine. Jacobs is an orthodox, or he uh, was a Jew. He's not a believer at all. Never read the Bible, not religious in any sense. Calls himself agnostic. 
And in 2006, Jacob uh, sat down and started reading the Bible for the first time. He said he's never read anything. He said everything was brand new. This book, two, three thousand years old, I was reading stuff I didn't even know was there. And he decided that everything he would read, he would practice. Just do exactly what the good book says. So he went out, he got, he got, the, he got the whole robe, did the sandal thing, you know, walk around, look like Moses. Let his hair grow long, grew a full beard, and he literally went around for one whole year reading through the Bible verbatim and everything that it said to do, he would do. And at the end of the year, he wrote a book called The Year of Living Biblically. And on the interview that they had with Jacobs, they said to him, uh, you know, how did that like change your life? He said, man, I read stuff about slander and gossip, and I used to do that all the time. And I, when I read in the Bible, it says you can't do that, I quit that. He said, I used to work all the time, and then the Bible talks about a Sabbath. And so I started taking the seventh day off. I took every Saturday off, turned my cell phone off, turned off the internet, never did anything except spend time with my family, and I spent time praying. They said, what was one of the hardest things you had to do? He said, forgiveness. Forgiveness was the hardest thing. He said, I used to keep a record of everything that my wife did on my cell phone. Like, yeah, with the date and the offense. Some of you are thinking, so what's wrong with that? Dude, you got to... Uh, try that. Let me know how that goes for you. So... So he says, on the day that I read, you got to forgive. I pulled my wife in, sat her down, and I said, hey, honey, I was reading this thing. i got to forgive you. He said, I pulled out, my, pulled out the phone, and I showed her the list. He said, I thought she would go, oh, honey, that is so sweet. What she said was, man, you are sick. So he said, I had to let all that stuff go. I stopped keeping track of things. They said, were there any awkward moments? He said, there was one really awkward moment as he was walking through a park downtown, still dressed like Moses, you know, and some guy walked up to him and said, uh, man, what are you doing? He says, I'm, I'm reading the Bible and I'm doing everything that the Bible says to do from, and these are his, his words, from the Ten Commandments to stoning an adulterer. And the guy goes, well, geez, I'm an adulterer. Are you going to stone me? And Jacob goes, yeah, that'd be sort of cool. <laughs> so he reaches in and he said, I had like a pocket full of pebbles underneath the rope. He reaches under the rope, grabs a pocket full of pebbles, and chucks them at the guy. The guy is stunned. He reaches down, picks up one of the pebbles, and throws it back at Jacob. Hits him right in the face. They said, what did you do? He said, what could I do? The Old Testament says eye for an eye, you know. I'd let him do it. At the end of the interview, they said, how did this end for you? Did this change you? Here's what he said. He said, you know, I prayed to God every day, and it's hard not to believe in someone you're praying to every day. But now listen to the last few words. But I never really did convert. That's what he said. I never really did convert. He said, I never really went the whole way of, quote, accepting Jesus as my Savior. He now calls himself a reverend agnostic. And as I put the article down, I started asking myself questions. You know, because see, I grew up in the church. How many did? That's a lot of us. So when you grow up in the church, you know what the rules are, and you tend to conform to those things in order to fit into the body politic. But you have to ask yourself, don't you? Did you ever really convert? I mean, this year, if I give away more money than I've ever given away before, but I don't like it, 
Have I truly converted? Or have I just changed an action? If somebody does something wrong and I forgive that person, but I still sort of hope they get theirs, have I truly converted inside? Or am I just doing what I know the Christian life is expecting of me? Some years ago, I read this book by David Kinnaman. You might have read it too, books called Unchristian in which they interview uh, young born-again Christians who are under the age of 35 years old. So some of them are in your age bracket. And what they found, one of the startling discoveries, was that there is a lot of people in Christianity today who profess to be born again, and yet their lifestyles have not dramatically changed. According to Kinnaman and his research, people who are in their 20s and are born-again Christians are three times more likely than their parents were of having sex outside of marriage sometime in the next month. They are five times more likely, born-again Christians in their 20s, to get drunk. Three times more likely to gamble. Much more likely to use profanity get into a fist fight, view explicit material, or to say mean things to other people. So when you read things like this, the tendency is to look and say, wow, we got work to do. We got to start changing the lifestyle of people who profess to be Christians, right? And here's the problem. If we focus on changing the lifestyle, all it's going to do is create another brand of legalism, and you're going to hate that. I grew up in that stuff. Something else has to change inside of a person. Something like the soul. The Bible uses different words for that. Heart is one. It doesn't mean the organ that pumps. The heart means the seed of all your affections. Think of it like this. Inside of you, you have a list of desires. So when we talk about your heart, we're asking really, what are your desires and why do you desire that and not something else? Bible talks about the mind, and it doesn't just mean the things that you think. It means the way that you think, the pattern. It means the way that you see the world. So the Bible uses all different kinds of words to talk about the same thing. And the thing it's talking about is a fundamental change that has to take place deep inside of a believer. Think of it like this. Deep below the surface, there are tectonic plates. Those tectonic plates right now are shifting all of the time. And nobody cares. But every now and then, along a fault line, there will come another one. And when that plate shifts in a big way, it's called an earthquake. And suddenly, everybody cares. Because those of us who are walking on the surface, not paying attention to what's happening underneath, the moment what's underneath is a real big shift, it radically alters everything on the surface and people start thinking, oh my word, I never cared so much about those plays. What's going on down there? It's the, the same thing happens in the spiritual sense. Once there are changes deep inside the soul, in the heart of our lives, nobody pays much attention to that anymore. They don't talk about emotions. But when we get down into the soul and there are major changes in the soul, it radically alters everything on the surface of our lives. And this time, it's genuine. Because it started deep inside and it worked its way out. Does that make sense? One of the great places where you see this in the Bible is in Mark chapter 8. What bothers me about Mark chapters 
8, the story I'm about to tell you, is not so much the story, it's the place of the story in the Bible. In my opinion, it's in the wrong place. I mean, it happened at the right, but it's in the wrong place. Here's what I mean. When Jesus called disciples back then, he called disciples to do three things. In the same way he calls disciples today. Everyone he called, he called to repent, then he called to believe, and then he told them to follow. Got it? Those are always the three imperatives in the New Testament attached with following Jesus. You're going to follow Jesus, you have to first repent, then you've got to believe, and then you've got to follow. So in Mark chapter 1, Jesus walks around and he tells the disciples to repent, believe, and follow. And they all get in line and they start following Jesus. Everything Jesus tells them to do, they do it. But in Mark chapter 8, he pulls those same disciples aside. And he asks them, who do men say that I am? And they say, well, some say you're Elijah, some say... You're John the Baptist, and some say you're one of the prophets. By the way, those are, some, those are some heavyweights in the Bible. That's pretty good company. Jesus goes, but you, who do you say that I am? Peter jumps up and he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus turns around and says, brilliant. That was brilliant. And Peter's thinking like you might be thinking in class, yeah, I really am, aren't I? You know? I, and, and, and maybe he's just thinking, wow, that was lucky. You know? And Jesus looks at him and says, that's exactly who I am. And you didn't come up with that on your own. My Father who is in heaven put those very words into your mouth. A few verses later, same day, Jesus is walking with the same disciples and he starts to predict the crucifixion. He tells how the Son of Man will suffer, be handed over, die, and be resurrected. And halfway through that conversation, Peter, the same guy who just said, you are the Christ, the same guy, he looks at Jesus and he says, no, no, that'll never happen to you. And Jesus pulls Peter aside and they're having this argument. And Jesus looks at Peter and says to him, get behind me, you guys know, Satan. I mean, now you're asking yourself, wait a second, isn't this just the guy who God put words in his mouth a few minutes ago? And now he's talking with the voice of the devil? So in Peter's life, you see this guy who says, I have repented, I'm going to believe, and I'm going to follow. But then eight chapters, or really two years later, he's still having an argument with Jesus about the way the Messiah should act? How should he know? There is in Peter this kind of schizophrenia, isn't there? One moment he talks like God, in one moment he talks like the devil. And so you start to wonder if for two years of his life he's been waffling back and forth. That's not far from us. Baseball player at one of our universities pulls me aside and says, please pray for me because I really do love God, but I really love women. 
And he pulls me aside and tells me what he means by that. And I can see the schizophrenia. There it is again. I really do want to follow Jesus, but I'm caught with these desires and these patterns that I can't break free from. I really do love God, but then I, get, I just get a little mad. Maybe I bust a few things up. Maybe say a few four-letter X. I mean, no, but you know, oh, that's the problem, isn't it? We find ourselves split right down the middle. And we can't really deny our love for God. You are the Christ. But we can't deny that there are times in our lives when Satan is putting things into our life and we seem to be speaking for him. Something's got to change. Now listen to what Jesus says next. He says, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God. You have in mind the things of man. And what he literally said in the Greek is, you are not minded like God. You are minded like a man. Literally, what he said was, you are not hardwired like God. You're hardwired like a man. You do not have God's instincts. You have human instincts. And so every time you go out and something goes wrong, you have to keep asking yourself, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? Your whole life has been about nothing more than simple obedience. That's the way humans are wired. But when you are wired like God, you have God's dispositions. You see, you have his nature. You do not ask yourself, what would Jesus do? You ask yourself, why in the world would he do that? And then you try to find out what made Jesus do what he did. And you ask God for that to happen in you. And very gradually, God begins to transform your nature, not just your actions. So here's the problem. Most religion today, even in our churches, is too shallow. It's too easy. We've led thousands of people to believe that if they can just live like Jesus they have done all that's required. That is not all that God wants to do in you. The changes that He wants to make in you are so deep and so fundamental to who you are that you can do those things even when you're not trying. I had this little thing where just before I'll speak, I come to the place with my shoes untied. don't know how I ever started that. I've been doing this now 15 years. And I'll sit down in the front and I'll sit there. Just before the service starts, I'll start tying the shoes. Well, I'm at this camp like a year ago, and I went down to tie my shoes, and I noticed they were already tied. And then I had this profound thought. I thought, who tied them? And then I started thinking, I must have tied them. I must have tied them when I was thinking about something else. I tied my shoes, and I don't even remember tying my shoes. Now, I know some of you brainiacs are thinking, do you chew gum too? Wow, man, you are multi-talented there. Well, the point I'm making is, I mean, I've tied my shoes so long that while I'm working on something else in my mind, 
I can be doing something, and, I, and you know what? It is right 100% of the time. What if following Jesus was like that? What if you didn't have to stop, sit down, and say, now do you go under or over? But you just started living out of the fullness of your personality. You did anything that you wanted to do, and it just turns out being like Jesus. What if you were so changed internally that in the middle of the night when you weren't even thinking, you were acting like Jesus? A friend of mine in Ontario, sound asleep one night, and his wife wakes him up. He's snoring. She wakes him up, bam! She goes, quit it, you're snoring. You know what he says? He doesn't remember his wife tells him the next day. She goes, or he, he, he goes, oh, I'm sorry. I said, you apologized in your sleep? Dude, you are holy. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Your roommate, bam, bam, bam. Knock it off, you're snoring. And you go, oh, I'm sorry, because that is not what you say. You go, shut up. What if your second nature, your default, your solar plexus was wired like Jesus? That sounds like way, way out there. But I want to tell you this morning, that is actually possible. In fact, God actually considers that normal. Don't ever, ever, I don't care how hard it is, don't ever, ever, ever settle for something less. There's a lot of skepticism out there right now about what holiness is. And the reason I think there's skepticism is because people who have tried for so long and they couldn't attain it have tried to convince themselves it's no longer necessary. They say if we can't find bread, let's just say we're not hungry. But y'all know better, don't you? You know that God made you to be more than just this. Can I pray with you for a moment? And then we're going to have the band come back up. Father, not what would you do, but why would you do that? We're going to spend a few more times together here, Lord, uh, all of us in this room, and I pray that you would do things that are so deep inside of our natures that we begin to genuinely change. We do not ask for mere obedience. We could do that on our own. What we ask for is a miracle equivalent to turning water into wine. And we want that change to be as deep in us as our soul. And so this morning we begin by just saying, Lord, that's what I want. I confess to you I do not have it yet, but that's what I want. That's normal. And will you begin that work in me? In Jesus' name.